Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll read together, pray, and we'll see what God has for us. Maybe you have in some way, shape, or form, but you know, today is a national holiday, obviously recognized as Halloween, but there is also a religious holiday that's kind of tucked away that we don't look at, we don't talk about, we don't interact with all that much. Um, but what it is for us, specifically for us as the church here this morning as Crosspoint celebrating uh, on so many different levels, even specifically within my own life and my own religious journey is how monumental for us, hopefully to see how monumental this day is for us in the existence of our church and any Bible-believing church that exists today. You know, and so what today is, if you didn't know or haven't known, and is a day called Reformation Day. It's a celebration of church history. It's a celebration of things that have been done before us, prayer that has been prayed, work that has been done, people who have put themselves in place in their faithfulness to see the gospel in its fullness revealed to people like us. You know, because there was a day and age in church history whenever we could not do what we do today because we didn't have this. And just in so many different levels and, 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 you know, so many different people that are involved in that and worked and prayed for the true gospel to be known and taught around the world. And so, you know, all, like I said, all throughout history, there are so many people that played an integral part in where we are today, where we're present today, reading from God's word, worshiping a holy God that has saved us through his righteousness, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so, you know, every year I hope to maybe just kind of lean into one person 
and just kind of talk about where they play into the story and where they play into the history of the Reformation. But uh, this morning we're going to lean into uh, one individual. And so, you know, as we kind of talk about this, maybe you ask yourself, well, what is the Reformation? What is the Reformation? So, you know, we've been talking from 1 Peter. 1 Peter takes place around 64 AD. Uh, the Caesar, the emperor at this, that time is Emperor Nero. And remember, he hates Christians. He wants them, he wants to humiliate them. Remember, at times he's murdering them or having them murdered uh, because of, of just a, the cultural climate that they're in existence. And so the Reformation, kind of when we think about this, the, the, the key point of the Reformation happens about 200, uh, I'm sorry, 250 years after 1 Peter, let's go there, 250 years after 1 Peter, a shift begins to happen. You know, from Nero to the next emperor to the next, and then 250 years after Nero, we find ourselves with an emperor, Caesar, named Constantine. And Constantine is the first, the first Caesar, the first emperor to embrace Christianity. He says, this is, this, I want this. Okay, and so what we see is we see this Caesar kind of embrace Christianity. And from this, we see the birth of a Roman church. And Constantine had a vision. Constantine's vision would that the church or the religious Christianity would unify the empire of Rome. And the Roman Empire was vast, right? The Roman Empire was more vast than any other empire in history. And I know this is sounding like a history lesson, like you're in school, but I want to lay some groundwork as we kind of move into what I believe God wants to show us in the text that we've even read here this morning. And so Emperor Constantine says, he embraces Christianity. He says, no longer is Christianity outlawed, it's legalized. And he says, not only that, but I wanted a part of my Roman governmental system because he wants to unite the nations under this umbrella of Christianity, which seems great. But like what we've talked about, where the church thrives is on the margins. The church has never thrived when it's the center of culture. And so what begins to happen is a Roman church is developed, and that Roman church is given a name, a name that means universal because its desire was to unify the nations. And so that church was called the Roman Catholic Church. And so 250 years after Peter, all the things that we've been reading, this church is established, and these things begin to happen that help unify, even make the faith a little more uh, palatable for the unbelievers, because Constantine wants all to believe. And so he begins to do some things and implement some things that we won't lean into really heavy this morning. But what happens is as he has legalized this Christianity and he begins to lead the church down this road and establish this hierarchy of people and places, that we begin to see that the church begins to be more politically influenced than they are biblically influenced. And that begins to shape our history. From that moment on, the church begins to be shaped. Well, in 1483, a man is born, and his name is Martin Luther. So maybe you have or haven't heard that name, and if you mention that name around your Catholic friends, they'd probably cringe and disown you, because they do not like this fellow. They do not like him at all. I grew up in the Catholic Church, even reading some literature leading up to this week. The way they talk about Martin Luther is rough. But... You know, and they called him all kinds of things. A heretic. They said that he was mentally unstable. They said all these things. But what we know and what we can learn about this man is the way he lived 
and the part he played in the growth of the church in reformation, this word, and we can look at it, you can see where there's, there's formation in it, a reformation of the church at this time. And so he is a part of, people before him had started this fire, but he is the one that really begins to initiate this fire of change. And as we see his life, we can see anything but unstable. We can see anything but we see a man who had a desire for God's word. And listen, I'll just lay it right off the bat. Honestly, if he existed today, he'd probably be canceled because he's not a perfect person. No person is. And was Martin Luther perfect? He was absolutely not perfect. One of the things that he had the biggest struggle with is he had the biggest struggle with, and maybe you can relate, the biggest struggle with his tongue is that he didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. And he was so passionate about God's word. He was so passionate about doctrine. He was so passionate about true worship and true uh, clarification of the gospel that sometimes it got him into trouble, in legitimate trouble, things he probably shouldn't have said. But, you know, and, but so these things that, you know, he was not perfect. Like I said, uh, he even had very harsh statements against Jews at one time. And, and you know the statements you have are harsh if the Nazis feel like they can use those words. And so he didn't intend them like that, I would like to believe, but it was, he was driven by this passion that a lot of times got him into really bad trouble. And so we've talked about having control of how we act as things. But for him, you know, we can see from earlier stages in his life and leading up even to this time when he's getting himself into trouble, you know, we read all throughout the Bible of people who, who did really great things and still had bad to show for it. And, you know, thank God that David and Solomon and other people didn't live in the culture we live in today or they'd all been canceled long ago and they'd never had any been able to do anything. But, but knowing his life, knowing his drive, he was passionate about the word of God above all things. And so how, how for us, you know, the biggest thing that he was concerned with is not, you know, him navigating in his own life, how we get to that God that they worshiped and then how the, that God reaches down where we are to the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the passion at which drove Martin Luther. And so, you know, when we read this verse, in Romans 1.17, history tells us that this verse was a turning point verse for him when he finally began to understand what it meant. In verse 117 where it says, The righteous shall live by faith, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, referencing a verse in the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. And so just a little bit about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born into a very, very strict Roman Catholic home. He was, uh, his father was a minor, and his father's desire was for his son to have so much more than he had. And so he pushed him. He pushed him to do more. He pushed him to get educated. He pushed him to study. He pushed him to be driven, and he did. He went to college. He got his bachelor's. He got his master's in law. He was a lawyer. And he was a very, very good student, a very, very intelligent man. That, and he knew the law. He knew these things. And so, but later in his life, in 1505, as he's kind of navigating this stage of his life, he's called in a lightning storm. And in this lightning storm, he feels his life is threatened. And so he is afraid. And so in this time, the kind of the scope of his uh, humanity is brought into view and he comes to this place where he says that if, if my humanity is limited, then I need to do everything that I can do to be right before God. And so what does he do? Like any person who would want to be right before a holy God, he becomes a priest. He joins a monastery, becomes a monk, and he desires to become a priest. 
And so the thing about Martin Luther, the same way he entered into his education as a, as a lawyer, he entered into as his time as a priest. And he mastered Scripture. Because remember, in this time, the only people who had Scripture were those people, the educated people, the people who were in these seminaries and monasteries and these things. They were the only people who had Scripture. So when he got into this and he began to learn the languages and he began to understand Scripture, he was masterful at it. And so, like any good priest, they had aspirations for him. They said, this guy just gets it. Like, he's just so intelligent. But internally, through all of this time, Luther is struggling. He's struggling to understand some things. He's struggling to really grasp a hold of some things. And so, history tells us that whenever he went to perform his first Mass, you know, there's a certain portion of the Mass where the priest holds up uh, the communion bread, and he prepares to say what he says at that time, they call it the Eucharist. As he holds up that bread, he says, this is the body of Christ. Or this is my body, referencing the, the scripture. This is my body. And they believe within that time that something happens called transubstantiation, where the bread becomes the essence of the true body of Christ and the wine becomes the true blood of Christ literally becomes the body and bread and it's broken and all these things and so as just thinking about that in Martin Luther's mind before he can even get these words out it tells us that he froze that he mastered scripture he mastered the liturgy of the mass he mastered all these things and as he's standing there proclaiming this he freezes and everybody just looks on and he continues to kind of struggle and stumble through the mass And what we know, because he's written it, about what was going through his mind in that moment. As he's preparing to say the words of Christ, looking up at the bread, this is my body. He thinks to himself, what sinful human being would dare have the audacity to hold in his filthy hands the precious body and blood of Christ? And so what happened is Luther was overcome with unworthiness. He says, who am I to lay hands? If this is the true body of Christ, who am I to lay hands on his body? So this is the, a, a man who has mastered scripture. He's struggling with understanding something, and that's his worthiness to do anything before a holy God. You know, and so like we said in the beginning, he was a highly educated lawyer. So he understood the law of man very well. He understood what it required. He understood the penalties. He understood all these things. And so what he does is he takes his understanding of the human law and he applies those things to his understanding of God's law. And so for him as a lawyer, looking at holy God, looking at scripture, looking at the requirements, looking at the way the church has communicated how they do things, he's thinking to himself and struggling, how can I as a dirty, rotten sinner ever truly be good before a holy God? How could I ever come before a holy God? And so in light of God's holiness, in light of his work and pursuit, how could I ever be deemed good? For Luther, it seemed impossible. How could I ever be good? How could I ever 
get to heaven. You know, and in the system, they have confession. They have all these things that you do. Uh, and we'll talk about them a little bit further on and how you access God's grace and, and getting good, God's good graces and, or, or, or navigate that space. And so for him, he could not fathom his own forgiveness, not in comparing himself to others, but in comparing himself to a holy God. How could he ever be right before God? How could God ever accept me? And so for Luther, he would spend, and if you've ever grown up in the church and you understand how that works, but, you know, when you go to confession, you sit before a priest, either right in front of him or behind the screen, and you share your sins. And, and you, as you share your sins, you're given penance, and you pray that penance, and that's your forgiveness, that's your indulgence that you kind of navigate for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what it would tell us, I mean, I did confession growing up, and I typically didn't spend any more than 15 to 20 minutes in there. If that, Luther would spend daily two to three hours confessing his sin. He was that just aware of his faults. He was, this is a man in the monastery. This is a man that has mastered scripture. And he would even get accused of his peers of, of being too critical. Like, bro, let it go. You're confessing too much. You know, that's bad when priests are telling you, you're confessing too much. But that's how aware he was of his brokenness. He would spend two to three hours asking, com confessing his sins, doing his penance. Then he would leave with joy, with hope. Oh, thank God I'm forgiven. On his way out, he would be reminded of one sin that he forgot to confess. And every bit of joy and hope he left with vanished. Can you imagine the heaviness? And maybe you can imagine the heaviness of never truly feeling forgiven, of never truly feeling like God is in reach or that God is reaching towards me. And so Luther finds himself at this place and eventually he would come to the mindset, even while in the monastery, that he hated God, that God was a tyrant, that there is, God is a tyrant because he is demanding something from unrighteous people that they could not give. They cannot do, in considering the law and how the law applies and how all these things play out in his mind. He said, there is nothing I can do to be right before God. And so in this time, during this time, he takes a trip to Rome, which is kind of the epicenter of all of this. He takes a trip to Rome and he begins to see, now to be fair, there was about a 50 to 60 year period where this is happening. But during this time, Luther sees corruption. He sees corruption as the Roman government and the church are one. He sees corruption. He sees things being done for their own benefit. He sees this thing. And the main thing that really drove Luther to fight or to challenge is this thing called indulgences. What indulgences were is that people could give money for the forgiveness of their sins or to move people that have passed from purgatory into heaven. And so the, the kind of the phrasing that went along with it was this, that as soon as the gold in the basket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. And then this money would be used to build big giant buildings. And so this bothered Luther because he thought to himself that this was abuse of God's grace. That the church, were the church was using these things. They were using people's hope 
against them, to gain money from them. They were giving them the hope that if they paid money, that they, they themselves could be forgiven or they could help get someone out of what they believe is this, this holding area for people who aren't quite righteous enough to get into heaven. And so it was during this time that the focus of Luther's mindset shifted and began to truly be enlightened by the idea of by faith alone. By faith alone. That the question for him and for us, and that the question, the main question is that when are we justified? When are we, remember justification is being declared innocent. And so Luther's question is, when are we declared innocent before a holy God? What he was learning and what he was a part of teaching was a system that said you're declared righteous before a holy God when you've done enough to show for it. Through indulgences, through participating in the communion, through confession, through good acts, through all of these things and all of these acts, all of these actions that by that work you are made right and justified before a holy God but you are never truly declared eternally innocent before that holy God until you're glorified at the end of your life before a holy God. And so the question is, when does that happen? Luther came to the understanding through Scripture that justification was by faith alone, through faith in Christ, through faith in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross, and we'll see this a little bit more as we move on, that that is how we are justified. That that is how we are made right before a holy God. And when he understood that, the gates of paradise swung open for him. That he finally began to understand this idea. That my justification is not on my own naked righteousness that will always fall short, but on the righteousness of Jesus that I must hold on to. And when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about right standing or good standing before a holy God. And so he tells us and he came to the understanding that justification is not by my righteousness but the righteousness of God and scripture communicates this and as he learned this he began to see how scripture points to this idea and Paul would even say in Galatians 3:11 now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith Habakkuk 2:4 is where this reference comes from behold his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith Romans 4, 5, it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I love that verse. I want to read that again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Luther believed the church, church has missed it on that one. And he declare, and, and how we are declare, declared righteous. That is, it is not by good works, but by Jesus' perfect work in his life and dying on the cross for us. And in that, that we are granted freedom to live in obedience to our holy God. And so what Luther does, and this is kind of the most famous thing he's known for, is he goes to this place where people would typically put things to engage with the council of the church because he wanted to have a discussion. He was not 
out of his mind. He was not causing mutiny. He was not trying to strike up a rebellion. He goes to the place where people would typically go to in, in, invite a discussion with the church. He nails these, these statements, 95 statements of questioning or challenging certain aspects of what the church believes. Now, people took those things, they copied them and distributed them to the community, and he got a following from that, but that was never his intention. His intention was to have a discussion and a debate about the truths about God's Word. And from that, it led to a meeting, which we won't spend a lot of time on today. I could really talk about this forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But, and it's special to me. His experience is special to me. Because there was a realization that he comes to, and it's a realization that I came to in my life, because I spent most of my life believing, and I've said this before, believing that my, at best case scenario, I better have a group of people praying me out of purgatory because there's no way I'm ever making it to heaven. There's no way I'm ever making it to heaven. Either that or I was going to end up in hell. I had pretty much convinced myself of that. But it's the moment that we begin to realize when we are truly justified and how we are truly justified for me personally, when my life began to change. And so two quick things for us as we finish up is this. The first thing is that we are found righteous when we trust in the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. That we are made right before God when we trust in the rightness of Jesus on our behalf. Verse 17 of Romans 1, it says, from faith for faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that faith is a confidence in things hoped for, that it's an assurance of things to come, that we know this is not a guess, that faith in something is an assurance that that something will apply. And so what Luther came to the understanding, what he believed the church needed to know and needed to communicate is that we are saved through faith in the perfect work of Jesus that did what we could not do, live on this earth as a perfect human being and die a death that we could not die. And that he would say this, that we are beggars. And that is true. When he's speaking of our dependence on the grace of God, that it's not something we do to work to access, but it's something made available to us to live in, to walk in, and to confidently proclaim from, so that we as Christians could live in our lives today and not live under an umbrella of shame, not live shackled by the mistakes we've made or currently make, but live and pursue righteousness in the confidence of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Listen, a lot of people in, 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 in the church's argument for this will be like, well, if you believe that you're made righteous by faith, then what point is it to live for good, to live for God, to live in obedience? And we'll get to that later on. But the problem is we've got a misconception about what it means to live by faith if the living that we do isn't for God. Then we've missed what true faith is. But Luther would also say this, he says, so when the devil throws your sin back in your face and tells you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? He says, for I know who suffered and made a satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of God, and where he is there I shall also be. He lived his whole life trying to work towards God, mastering scripture. But it wasn't until he, he knew and understood that his way to God wasn't his own work, but it was through the work of Jesus Christ. 
and that in that confidence he could truly live. Romans 3, verse 25 through 26. It says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. It says, People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And remember, belief is not just a verbal proclamation. Belief is a state of the heart. Belief is a state of the mind. Belief is a state that we, we live in and that we act from when we believe in Jesus. Romans 8.30, and he says, And those who are predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because that's the disconnect. The church at that time was teaching that you're not justified until you're glorified. But Luther would teach, and the way we teach, and how the church has reformed over the centuries, is that you are justified and glorified at the same time, eternally sealed with God the Father in heaven. And then the second thing is this, and we'll end here. When we are made right before God, we are called to live right before man. When we are right before God, we are called to live right before man. And he says in verse uh, Romans 1, Paul says in verse, uh, Romans 1 verse 16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Listen, because the true gospel, people may not get it. People may not accept it or even understand it, even our kids or our spouse. But we must live it and we must say it without shame. After he nailed the 95 theses or these 95 statements to this board and he's brought before this council or this meeting called the Diet of Worms, this is this gathering of princes, of, of, of people, of, of high status, of religious people. They're all gathered here and they stand before Luther and they tell him that you must recant these statements. Recant these statements, say that you were wrong, say that you've missed it. And what did he do? The first thing he did, the first meeting, he said, let me think about it. Now, in that, he's not questioning what he believes, but he's considering the cost because he understood what it was going to mean for him to stand up against this group of people, against this government, against this church, and say what you're teaching is wrong. And so what does he say? He says to give me the night to think about it. Then he said, hey, man, give me a shout out. He said, let me think about it. And then he said, in his response, when they said, they said, Luther, will you recant the things that you wrote and the things that you said and the books that you write and the things that you teach? And he said this, he said, here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. He said, it's unless I am convinced by Holy Scripture, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. There was a passion there that drove Luther. And my prayer for us that we can be passionate about God's word and its effects on our families and the people around us in a way that we would not be ashamed, that we would stand where we are. We would sing in this place. We would go from this place. We would teach our kids. We would meet together around God's word and we could say, here I stand, I can do no other, but proclaim the gospel for what it is and what it does and how it influences us and how it has saved me. 
from the dirty, rotten sinners that we all are. And you know what? For Luther's life, as he fought for this understanding of faith for salvation, it translated itself into living. This was not his excuse to set back and to continue to sin, but it drove him to live even more. It says during the Black Plague, he lived during this time, during the Black Plague as he lived there in Germany. It says as people left, as people evacuated the areas where they was really prominent, it says that he stayed. He stayed and he ministered to the sick there. And it was during this time that he wrote a hymn, maybe even a hymn that you've sang before. But that hymn is called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That song says, just thinking about it through the lens of the Black Plague and the hopelessness of that time, it says, Do we in our strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just as who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same. He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. And the confidence that he's writing, he's communicating in the church thousands of years later, we're still singing those words and communicating those words to each other. Because not only did Luther live his life and minister in that way, but Luther also was a songwriter and a singer. He said this, and I love this quote. He says, I have no use for cranks who despise music. He says, it's a gift from God and it drives away the devil. Next to theology, Luther placed singing and worship at high honor. There's value to our singing. There's value to our communicating and proclaiming these truths because he understood. He understood the value, the, the vulnerability, the emotions that come as we sing about the truths of God and who he is. He said this, he said, I would not trade what little I know of music for something great. And not only that, not only did he minister, not only did he sing and proclaim and how he lived out his faith, but the last thing is he led his family. He led his family and he loved his family. And he even said that he said he saw his marriage as a school for character. That he respected his wife, that he loved his children, and he saw the whole scope of the marriage and as the family unit, as a, as, a, as a thing God has given, as a blessing God has given to mold his own character. You know, when his daughter, his young daughter is dying, she said to him, as he leaned next to her and wept, she said to him, and I pray that I could teach my children to respond in this way. She's young at this time, three, four years old. She says, why are you sad? She says, I'm going to be with my heavenly father. And it tells us that he turned away so that she wouldn't see him weep. And not only that, but he was beating himself up for not having the faith that his daughter had. But I think what he could also know is that that faith she had is a faith that he led her to. And that is the living that our faith should be doing in our lives. 
in our families' lives, as we participate with our spouses, as we participate with our children, as we participate in the life of our local church, that we are sharing this faith and communicating it in our lives. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to end as we just kind of extend our worship time, proclaiming these truths, resting in these truths of what God has done, and hopefully seeing this morning, hopefully for us seeing and as Luther's life and as in his ministry, you know, Luther died while traveling. His wife was very sad to not be able to be there with him. But during the, the last kind of uh, part of Luther's life and ministry, he had a strong conviction about the gospel. And his desire and his fear for the church, and I think it's the day and age and the fear that we live in today, his fear for the church is that the church would forget the gospel. That they would forget the true gospel. And that his last sermon was a call. His last sermon was a call to not distort the gospel or neglect it or to turn their back on it.
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. What does that verse tell us? That it is so easy, and I believe most Christians, not just Roman Catholic, not just Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians too, find ourselves living in this space where we are dependent on the work that we do and we live in the state in which Luther lived. We never work. Never, we can never serve. Why would I ever talk to my children about Jesus? Who am I to do this? Who am I to teach a class? Who am I to be in church? I mean, if you talk to people, that's most of their mindsets. Who am I? Like, God doesn't want me there. That's because it's a mindset that's focused on you. It's a mindset that's dependent on you as an individual to get you to God. We serve God, the only God in religious history that comes to His people. I've got the way forward. I've got the I've got the admission that you need. It's in Jesus. Church, if you would stand with me this morning, we're going to sing together. And I pray that it would be in the light of this idea that we would leave here this morning and proclaim the truths of this gospel that Jesus has invited broken, rotten sinners into his fold, not to continue to live in sin, but to walk forward in obedience. Our need like beggars before you. 